Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome back to the Healthy Gut Podcast, and I'm so excited to be here with you for season two. Now, before we get going with today's podcast, I wanted to let you know about something that I have been working on that I am so excited to be able to share with you today. I have launched a range of ready-made meals that are completely SIBO-friendly. They're low FODMAP, gluten-free, dairy-free, grain-free, but not taste-free. They taste delicious. And they're available to people who live in the United States of America. I've partnered with a paleo food business called Caveman Chefs, and they are producing the meals for me on my behalf. Now, these guys are passionate about food, just as passionate about the quality of food that they use in their meals as I am, which is one of the reasons why I partnered with them. So their food, wherever possible, is organic, it's non-GMO, it comes from local uh, producers and farmers, and it's a really high quality of produce. They're based in Denver, Colorado, and they are making a range of SIBO-friendly meals on my behalf. These meals are perfect for those times when you get home, you're exhausted, the last thing you feel like doing is cooking, but you do want to eat a meal that you know is compliant to your SIBO protocol. So regardless of whether you're following the SIBO-specific food guide, the SIBO biphasic diet, or the low FODMAP diet, these meals are really great for those protocols. Perhaps you're just following a gluten-free diet or a dairy-free diet. These meals are also great for them. The meals come pre-prepared, so you don't have to do any cooking. All you need to do is reheat them and eat. So within five minutes, you have got a delicious, tasty meal on the table that you can sit down and enjoy and get on with the rest of your life and not have to worry about cooking. Caveman Chefs and I have launched six meals to start with. Uh, We really look forward to sending them out to you and making life with SIBO just that little bit easier uh, so that you now know you've got beautiful, delicious, high-quality produce SIBO ready-made meals at your disposal. Make sure you head to the show notes from today's episode to learn more about them. The show notes are thehealthygut.co forward slash VH. That's for visceral hypersensitivity. 
Another really exciting thing for season two of the Healthy Gut podcast is that you can now call in and ask a question that you would like myself to answer or one of my guests. It's absolutely free to call no matter where you are in the world. All you need to do is head to my website, either head to the show notes page for this episode or the main podcast page, which you can find at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And you will see a button on the website which says leave a message for the healthy gut. Now, this is the opportunity you have. I know you guys have been wanting to do this. You've asked me for it. So you can click that button. It will start recording on your computer or your cell phone, whatever you're using to access my website. And then you can leave me a message. And in coming episodes, I will be sharing your calls and my responses to them. Or I'll be able to include them in interviews I have coming up with special doctors. So I really look forward to hearing your messages um, for the podcast, guys. Now, today we're joined by Dr. Megan Taylor, and I recorded this interview with her actually last year in 2017. I do make reference to the fact that I'm free from SIBO in this podcast, and that's because at that point in time, I was, or I thought I was anyway. As I said in in our launch episode for season two, which was last week, my SIBO has actually returned. So I just wanted to point that out, guys, in case anybody thinks, Hang on a second. I thought Rebecca said she had SIBO. It's just that this interview was recorded a little while ago. Dr. Megan Taylor practices integrative primary care and naturopathic gastroenterology for adults and children with digestive complaints, allergies, and autoimmune diseases in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Taylor earned her doctorate in naturopathic medicine from National University of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon, graduating with honours. She completed two years of postgraduate residency training in primary care and naturopathic gastroenterology under the mentorship of Dr. Stephen Sandberg-Lewis and Dr. Alison Seebecker. She has advanced training in the diagnosis and treatment of specific conditions such as GERD, gastritis, inflammatory bowel disease, including microscopic colitis, gallbladder and liver disorders, functional abdominal pain, functional dyspepsia, irritable bowel syndrome, and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, among others. Today, we're going to be talking about visceral hypersensitivity, what it is, why those of us with irritable bowel syndrome and SIBO and other digestive disorders need to be aware of visceral hypersensitivity and why we can be more prone to it. I was fascinated talking to Dr. Taylor about this in our interview We also talk about why visceral hypersensitivity might be an underlying factor for you, particularly for those of you that experience really intense symptoms or you're still experiencing symptoms despite getting a clear or negative um, SIBO test or other type of test where you've cleared your condition but your symptoms haven't improved and particularly for those of you who react to everything including water. 
Today's episode is so fascinating and I know you will really get a lot out of it. So here is my interview with Dr. Megan Taylor on visceral hypersensitivity. Dr. Megan Taylor, welcome back to the Healthy Gut Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Rebecca. It really is a pleasure. It's wonderful to have you back. We did a great interview with each other in uh, 2017, all around kids with SIBO. So I do if I recommend any of the listeners who might have a, a young person uh, who is dealing with SIBO to go check that out. But today we're going to be talking about visceral hypersensitivity. I'd love to start off with what does that actually mean? It's a great question. I know it's a bit of a mouthful. And I know I have a lot of patients coming in saying, man, I've heard about this thing, right? I say, I say it, this visceral hypersensitivity, hypersensitivity thing. And I think us doctors sort of throw it out there um, without doing a lot of kind of explanation of what it means. And we can break it down. Um, visceral hypersensitivity. So we're talking about viscera, viscera referring to the organs specifically. Um, unlike, you know, might've heard about somatic hypersensitivity. Somatic refers to the muscles, the musculoskeletal system. Viscera refers to the organs. So we know right off the bat, we're talking about something about sensitivity of the organs. And when we're talking about hypersensitivity, we're specifically meaning increased sensation or increased sensitivity to sensation in the organs. So in visceral hypersensitivity, we have an basically altered sensation, increased sensation and perception of sensation from the organs. Um, and that's visceral hypersensitivity. That's what visceral hypersensitivity means, kind of just the, the basic terminology there. Wonderful. And when we think about the correlation between visceral hypersensitivity and SIBO. Could you explain that link with uh, organs and, um, and SIBO? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So we see visceral hypersensitivity quite a lot in um, patients, and this is this is where patients often run across it, um, in patients with what we consider in the digestive world, what we consider functional bowel disorders. So things like IBS, we know, and you're, you're, you're well-educated um, listeners know that IBS and SIBO overlap quite often, as do does SIBO with other functional gastrointestinal disorders. Um, and we no, right? Through the digestive tract, there are plenty of organs that we might develop sensitivity to based on where um, we're experiencing symptoms. So in SIBO, for example, SIBO is small intestine. We have that bacteria overgrown in the small intestine. And what it's what it's been shown is that people with visceral hypersensitivity who have some syndrome um, who have IBS specifically, um, have increased sensation actually throughout their entire gastrointestinal tract. So they'll have increased sens uh, sensation in their esophagus, stomach, small intestine, large intestine, rectum, that you can have that increased sensation or increased sensitivity throughout. Not everybody with IBS has visceral hypersensitivity, but it's estimated that anywhere from a third to up to 90% based on the study that you look at of individuals with IBS have visceral hypersensitivity. So it's really common and a really important kind of condition or comorbidity, you know, co-occurring condition to know about when um, you're, you have IBS or have SIBO or are working with people who do. How does visceral hypersensitivity actually happen? What, what's going on in the body for that to occur? 
Great question. It's complicated is the short answer, but we can talk about some of the basics. Um, when we're having visceral hypersensitivity, um, two processes happen, and they're kind of big words, but I'll break them down. Um, one process is called allodynia, meaning that there's an increased response to normal sensation in the body. And allodynia, or normal sensations such as the normal contracting of the esophagus or normal peristalsis of the intestines is actually interpreted as pain. Okay. So it's this interesting um, thing that's happening where the body is interpreting normal sensation as uncomfortable or painful. The nervous system, I should say, is interpreting that sensation. The other part that happens is something called, called hyperalgesia, meaning there's an increase in this in, sort of an intensified sensation of pain to otherwise normally uncomfortable sensation, but suddenly it's way more painful than it would be to the person without visceral hypersensitivity sitting next to you. So this is really important with patients with IBS and with SIBO because, you know, a lot of people walk out around, right? We know this, and you might have chatted about this on your on your podcast historically, is that there are people who test positive for SIBO, right? But have no symptoms. We call these people these asymptomatic SIBO cases, right? Well, why? Why is that? Um, and one theory we have is maybe those people who don't experience symptoms of their SIBO, sort of test interpretation aside, um, might not have visceral hypersensitivity um, or a, a degree of visceral hypersensitivity that that kind of increases sensation to the point that they actually interpret it interpret those sensations as painful or uncomfortable, like the folks with diagnosed IBS um, might indeed experience. So those two, allodynia and hyperalgesia, are the sort of mechanisms by which we get this increased sensitization um, to both normal and uncomfortable sort of sensation in the gastrointestinal tract, um, how we start getting hypersensitive to those sensations. That's absolutely fascinating. And I'm thinking of myself and my partner when you were talking about mm -hmm. that. We both um, had SIBO, or I suspect he still does because he never completed his treatment. He did four weeks and said that's enough. <laughs> but my results, my numbers were half what his were, yet my symptoms were 10 times worse than what his were. And it was really only through me um, constantly recommending or suggesting that he did something about it that after two and a half years, he, I think just out of frustration with me talking about him doing a test all the time, he finally went and did it. And so I was amazed that my numbers was so much lower than his and yet the impact it was having on my life was extreme. And even today, despite the fact that I, I don't have SIBO, my system is still way more sensitive than his and he jokes and says, oh, you're just such a sensitive little soul, Rebecca. <laughs> that is, uh, that's such a great example, Rebecca, because that is exactly right. You know, I, I mentioned this whole concept of, you know, people who, you know, two people who might have SIBO, one who experiences the symptoms of it in the form of, you know, IBS symptoms as a sort of generic, you know, larger term and the other that doesn't. But I think the more interesting patient, right, is the patients that, that I run into all the time, and then I'm sure your, your listeners fall in this category, you fall into this category, right? Which is you have, you know, documented SIBO, but your symptoms are so significant. And that even after treatment, when your SIBO test comes back negative, 
right? You still have symptoms. That's when we really should start, start suspecting some degree of visceral hypersensitivity. And honestly, we know, right, IBS and SIBO specifically, they're multifactorial illnesses, meaning there's there's many things contributing. And if, let's say, you know, 25% of somebody's symptoms have to do with visceral hypersensitivity, I say we treat it. You know, we, we, we focus on, we don't just wait until we're, we've effectively treated their SIBO till we're the end of it, right? But we actually start addressing those things kind of in the beginning, sort of assuming we know that, you know, in these studies, a third up to 90% of people with IBS have visceral hypersensitivity. That's a good amount of individuals um, and a good proportion of our population and might be worth treating them just as if, assuming as if, <laughs> if there's some degree, because it can provide substantial um, benefit to people in terms of symptoms, even if they're not even touching their, uh, their quote unquote, their SIBO, you know, specifically. What are some of the symptoms or pain sensations or just sensations that a person might feel or experience if they do have visceral hypersensitivity? Mm-hmm. So in visceral hypersensitivity, it really is a increase in the sort of the existing symptoms um, and sort of an increase in the experience of those symptoms. And so somebody might, you know, without visceral hypersensitivity report abdominal pain that's a, you know, two out of 10 on the severity score with severity scale with visceral hypersensitivity added onto that. And maybe now it's a six or seven out of 10. Additionally, that sort of this, we have the worsening of symptoms, pain, the sense, the worsening, um, sort of experience of bloating or distension, um, with more severe symptoms, they've shown that there is a core, a pretty, um, uh, easy to identify correlation between the kind of GI symptom severity. So any GI symptom you start with and their degree of, um, visceral hypersensitivity along with it, we just get a kind of corresponding increase as we increase visceral hypersensitivity for, to all of those symptoms that go along with those functional bowel disorders. Um, we also, though, interestingly, this comes back to that allodynia or allodynia um, process, we also will, will experience an increase in sensation associated with normal physiologic processes. So this isn't just, you know, I have, you know, IBS symptoms and they're just, it's like a mic, you know, megaphone is on, they're just much louder or more severe, but maybe I don't even have, you know, SIBO, for example, or, or great example. This is a, ca- a case re- case report that I run in time and time again. I've had several cases of people who experience heartburn and they go in and do scopes and we see heartburn come along with SIBO all the time, of course, but they go in and do scopes. There's no evidence of reflux. Maybe people even go as far as doing what are called um, Bravo pH monitors where they actually put a little pH probe. Where there's other forms of these probes as well, but put a little pH probe in there and they say, oh no, you only have, and they wear it for you know, 24, 48 hours. Oh, they go back to the GI doc and the GI doc says, no, you know, you have a normal amount of reflux, right? Everybody refluxes a little bit, but these people, instead of experiencing or kind of not noticing it, like those of us who don't have heartburn, right? Walk around every day, getting a little bit of reflux and not noticing it. These people do notice it. They notice it in a big way and to the point where it can be quite debilitating um, at a minimum, really concerning because we know of the increased risk of, you know, damage to the esophagus with heartburn. So I have a lot of probably two or three cases just in the last couple of months of people 
who have this real clear hypersensitivity happening in the esophagus. It's an easy place to look because scopes can reach there really easily. We can actually see, is there or is there not damage? Is there or is there not evidence of reflux? And kind of correspond that to somebody's um, degree of symptoms. That's sort of a great example of um, types of symptoms that can be sort of worsened by visceral hypersensitivity. In the situation where, and I, I'm sure you hear this and I know I hear this from SIBO patients from around the world where they say things like, I can't even drink a glass of water without being in pain. Are, are they the kind of people that are more likely to have visceral hypersensitivity when just the simple act of water seems to cause them great discomfort? Absolutely. That's one of my classic sort of like if I had a little um, sort of ding, 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 like a light that goes off in my head when I'm, when I'm trying to screen people to see if they have visceral hypersensitivity, I'll often talk to them about, you know, consumption of particular, you know, you know, you can kind of tell the more, the more likelihood of visceral hypersensitivity goes right along with people who have just a much more increased sensation with what we would consider sort of normal day-to-day physiologic, um, uh, you know, happenings in the body. So drinking water or just eating generally, right? So most of us, even with SIBO, we should be able to eat any, you know, a fair amount of uh, wide diversity of foods might limit our FODMAPs, for example, but might eat a wide diversity of foods and really have minimal symptoms. That's what so diet is so amazing is it can control symptoms so effectively. But if I have a patient in my office who says, I can't even do those foods, right? I can't even do my low, I can't even follow a low FODMAP diet without feeling you know, uncomfortable, increased bloating or sensation of distension um, or abdominal pain, then my, you know, that light bulb also goes off in my head to say, hmm, is there some degree of visceral hypersensitivity here that could be contributing to this patient's symptoms? Are there any other key light bulb ding, ding, things <laughs> that you have when you're talking to patients that, that all the people that are listening today are thinking, oh, that, oh, yep, yep, that's me. Yeah. I can tick that box and I can tick that box because um, this might help them to go to their practitioner and say, I listened to a podcast with Dr. Megan Taylor and we talked about visceral hypersensitivity and I'd love to, you know, for us to consider that as part of my uh, jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, yeah. It's um, so another, another, kind of thing that kind of makes that light bulb go off in my head in addition to sort of heightened symptoms like we've talked about thus far. There are several sort of risk factors for visceral hypersensitivity beyond just having IBS. And IBS is a sort of a classic risk factor. Um, Those who, you know, those of our patients who are female, they have an increased risk of visceral hypersensitivity. And especially if it seems to come in in along with other syndromes that seem to carry with them some degree of what we call central sensitization, a sort of hypersensitivity um, that's in the musculoskeletal system, for example. This is a great example. This is fibromyalgia. Um, It's an example of a a condition that has um, is sort of central sensitization, this hypersensitivity, not to the viscera necessarily, but to the muscles and pain, you know, or sensation experienced in the muscles. This is a, a, a condition that often goes along with IBS. We know a lot of our patients, right, have um, IBS and fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome or some of those sort of that kind of group of, of uh, conditions. That's another thing that will often sort of um, raise my alarm a little bit to say, hmm, could visceral hypersensitivity be playing a role here because these things sort of come together? 
What about nervousness around food? I hear this a lot, um, particularly with the people that are down to the five to ten foods that they, they're they really restricted, they're feeling quite nervous around eating, there's a lot of fear um, associated with mealtimes because food equals symptoms in their world and this was me so I know this really well. Um, when we're approaching our meal with a lot of anxiety and fear and trepidation around what's it going to do to me this time, can we be making our um, visceral hypersensitivity worse or can we be kind of turning up the dial on it if, if that is something that's present in our system? It's a great question, Rebecca, and, and the answer is yes, absolutely. Um, there's been some phenomenal – when I was prepping for the, our conversation today, you know, I, I tried my best to stay up on the research for visceral hypersensitivity because I find it such a not only interesting but incredibly useful tool in working with patients, and I happened to do some – you know, update just the last couple of days and realize there were some amazing articles coming out just the beginning of this year, just in the last week or so, specifically exploring how stress, um, both what they call early life stressors, um, you know, things early in our in our uh, in our life that's kind of maybe maybe set us up to be a slightly more anxious or hypervigilant person. Some people talk about these as um, adverse childhood events or ACEs um, is often discussed. Both those sort of early life stressors, as well as ongoing what we call HPA access dysregulation, right, where the um, hypothalamus, hypothalamus, pituitary, and adrenal glands are sort of not quite ta talking like the, in the ways that we hope, or sort of any increase in um, stress associated with eating can increase um, this risk for visceral hypersensitivity. Now, the research on this, like I mentioned, some of these articles just came out um, at the beginning of this year. The exact mechanism by which there is that these these um, this increase in stress can can increase visceral hypersensitivity is not fully elucidated, so we don't have a really clear picture. But there's a lot of theories around the mechanism, and and some of them are in response to you know increase in cortisol or. or um, the hormones that help to release cortisol increases in epinephrine, adrenaline, which happens in response to in response to stress, or it changes in even in sex hormone balance, which can, which can actually um, happen with an increase in stress. All have been shown to increase visceral hypersensitivity through a variety of mechanisms. So one of the first things I do when I'm working with somebody where I suspect some degree of visceral hypersensitivity especially if they are in the situation that, that you found yourself in. And, and I know many other folks have found themselves, I found myself in that, in this situation as a, as a patient, um, when I was going through my own process with SIBO, um, that limit around food and food fear that comes up, it has to be, it has to be a focus. It has to be addressed through whatever mechanism, whatever tools people use, whether that's mindful eating practices, prayer, you know, guided imagery, mantras, um, or a variety of other tools that are out there, working on the food fear and getting our bodies into that as best we can parasympathetic rest and digest state does seem would would sort of lead us to believe based on this research that that would help to address the visceral hypersensitivity now to my knowledge there haven't been um, necessarily uh, trials specifically with visceral hypersensitivity and and um, you know food fear and specifically this this thing we're chatting about but absolutely theoretically it makes a, a lot of sense what I find interesting is speaking to as many people as I do um, and 
uh, my one of my intentions for 2018 is to uh, do some uh, research on the SIBO patient so we can get some a really great picture on this. But anecdotally what I'm seeing is so many um, people with SIBO have experienced early childhood trauma, be it sexual abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse. It breaks my heart that so many people have experienced this, but I can really see a correlation between the people that I speak with and when we start exploring some of the, the stresses um, that these things are present in their life. And then also later in life stresses, work stress uh, and career stress, um, relationships relationship stress. And it's really interesting as well that from, from again, my anecdotal experience, so many people with SIBO are type A personalities. We're driven. <laughs> we want to achieve bigger and greater and more wonderful things. And that puts stress and pressure on ourselves, which is, it's really interesting to see that correlation. I know that, um, that my listeners will be thinking, okay, this is interesting. How do I get tested or diagnosed for <laughs> visceral hypersensitivity? <laughs> it's a great, it's, that's a great question. Absolutely. Um, now diagnosis is a little challenging. Um, I'll, I'll admit. So the, the current, um, diagnostic models for visceral hypersensitivity um, are often used, often limited to research. I won't say that they're exclusively limited to research, but they're often limited to research. And, and they have to do with the, the way in which somebody goes about getting diagnosed with visceral hypersensitivity um, is, it, you know, in, in, these, in these research models is, is kind of the same way that they sort of first discovered visceral hypersensitivity, which was running experiments where they um, blew up little balloon dilators in the rectums of volunteer participants and found that when they um that people with IBS had increased awareness and increased sensation of pain at lower volume so smaller balloons right kind of um caused this increased awareness and pain compared to their control so compared to their patients without without IBS and they saw ah our IBS patients have this you know increase in visceral hypersensitivity now for a long time you know visceral hypersensitivity was thought you know in some in some groups um, was thought to be sort of the, and this this actually, Dr. Pimentel in the, his first edition of the new IBS solution does a great job at kind of describing this. Um, that, that was sort of a set as, oh, well, that's what's causing people's symptoms, right? It's all just this, this hypersensitivity, right? You know, you know, we don't actually need to do anything more other than use, you know, things like antidepressants or other things to help kind of improve this, this visceral hypersensitivity, and then people will get better. Well, we know that's not the case necessarily, right? It's much more complex, multifactorial. But that generally, that, that process of balloon expansion in the rectum was initially how they discovered this whole, um, um, you know, or were able to prove this concept of visceral hypersensitivity. Now, there are some um, people that still get diagnosed that way with with balloon distension. But again, that's mostly limited to the um, to the research um, world. Typically, um, visceral hypersensitivity is often a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, I find in clinical practice, somebody um, has been, you know, 
through the ringer in terms of, for example, um, gastrointestinal imaging or procedures. You know, they've had all the scopes, they've had the CT scans, they've had the MRIs, they've done a smart pill, right? They've they've done all the um, all the uh, the possible testing, stool testing, breath testing they could, and 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 there's nothing there, right? And that's often um, kind of similar to the example I mentioned about the um, couple of cases I've had um, with this. You know, re- you know, sensation of heartburn without any abnormal, in quotes there, abnormal reflux. Um, that's often how people are diagnosed with visceral hypersensitivity. And and I would say that's a little disappointing, right? And I and your and your and your and your, re- your listeners might also um, find that a little disappointing because hey, we don't want to wait, right, until everything else has been treated and you know everything else has been excluded before we start, you know, talking about visceral hypersensitivity or thinking about visceral hypersensitivity. Um, and that's really where I come back to kind of what I said in the, in towards the beginning of our our conversation today, which is given the high prevalence of visceral hypersensitivity in IBS with some studies showing up to you know, 90% of individuals having visceral hypersensitivity, I think it's worth us, especially in, in those cases that we mentioned already, heightened sensitivity to foods, heightened sensitivity to just drinking liquids, you know, other kind of conditions, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome that sort of go along with um, this sort of process of central sensitization, that we should really be addressing this first and foremost. Um, when we're starting at somebody on a treatment protocol for their SIBO, um, I think that's also really important in patients who, let's say you've been treated multiple times. Let's say your numbers, you know, on your lactose breath test do come down, right? But you still have symptoms, right? Maybe your symptoms have improved somewhat, but they don't seem to improve to the degree that your test sort of shows that they should have. Another patient that's worth starting starting to have um, treatments for visceral hypersensitivity just being started presumptively. We know um, that there are a lot of treatment options available for visceral hypersensitivity, um, and a lot of them are low risk interventions. So worth worth in my opinion just going for it, um, even if we're not one hundred percent certain that somebody does have visceral hypersensitivity based on a test result. 
quite deep. Um, and at the partly that has to do with the fact that there are so many um, proposed in documented mechanisms for visceral hypersensitivity. Um, everything from, you know, increase in um, mast cell degranulation has been shown to increase visceral hypersensitivity. Activation of toll-like receptors, um, in, which are responsible for some, some um, immune system sort of development in the gastrointestinal tract, um, have been shown to increase visceral hypersensitivity. Changes in um, serotonin action in the gastrointestinal tract. Um, chronic inflammation related to chronic infections, um, anti or uh, microbial infections. Um, specifically, we've seen that there's increases in visceral hypersensitivity in people with post-infectious IBS, that sort of classic SIBO onset, right? Um, these folks often have visceral hypersensitivity um, due to a, 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 the thought or the theory being that these people had increased um, localized inflammation, which caused increased sensitization at the nerve endings, the enteric nerves, the nerves that surround the gastrointestinal tract, and that that then um, resulted sort of through a series of steps that increased central sensitization in the spinal cord as well. So now we have increased sensation. We see that this is kind of further kind of compounded by the presence of LPS or lipopolysaccharide. This is what's released by a lot of the bacteria that um, um, live in our gastrointestinal tracts and some of the bacteria that can be overgrown in the gas in SIBO specifically can secrete LPS. There's so many mechanisms, right? And we let alone, you know, we talked about how, you know, early life stressors, adverse childhood events, chronic stress and HPA dysregulation altered hormones, you know, increased progesterone and estrogen have been seen, right? So if we have all of these um, risk factors for developing visceral hypersensitivity or all these proposed mechanisms, you could see that the treatments for that then would be also sort of equally broad. And so there's some great research on a whole host of treatments. And we can talk about those, everything from Cognitive behavioral therapy, which has had some pro had some promise in visceral hypersensitivity, thoughts that it might be decreasing sort of nervous system hypervigilance, um, decreasing the activity of the amygdala, which is sort of the the cl classic sort of emotional center in the in the brain, the limbic center in the brain. Um, addressing those early life stressors or adverse childhood events does seem to provide benefit in visceral hypersensitivity at a minimum by providing patients with tools. But then we can also go further and say, can we actually decrease sensitization, that hypersensitization? And absolutely, there have been, um, there are I mean, we could start by just talking about the number of drugs that are available, pharmaceuticals um, that are available. Everything, you know, one of the classic treatments um, is nortriptyline um, or amitriptyline. These are tricyclic antidepressants. A lot of patients, you know, they might have a provider, gastroenterologist, GI specialist that has recommended this in the past, and they just assume, oh, this provider thinks it's all in my head, right? They think it's all in my head. I'm, I'm depressed. That's what's causing my symptoms. They might, in part, think that there's some some component of depression because we know there's such a high um, correlation between depression and anxiety and IBS. But actually, these uh, tricyclic antidepressants have been shown to decrease that sensitization that's happening in the um, at the enteric neurons, the, the the nerves that line the gastrointestinal tract, as well as the nerves in the spinal cord that have kind of promoted this visceral hypersensitivity. We've also seen that um, low doses of um, 
SSRIs and SNRIs, two classes of other antidepressants that modulate serotonin and norepinephrine, also have some benefit. As do things that promote GABA. GABA is one of our main inhibitory neurotransmitters. And if you can promote GABA formation, you can absolutely help to decrease sort of that hypersensitivity. A lot of patients, for example, who have fibromyalgia use GABA with good, or um, gabapentin or neurontin, pharmaceutical um, uh, versions of GABA to good benefit. So those are some of the sort of conventional approaches. And then our toolbox for naturopathic or natural botanical medicine is also really, really broad and diverse. And I'm happy to chat about those as well. I'd love you to. Okay. Um, there's been some great studies on um, specifically enteric coated peppermint oil. Um, so a lot of patients may have seen seen uh, run across this remedy. It's one of my favorites to recommend that people to have in their um, toolkit, their home, their home little um, pharmacy. Um, peppermint oil. Um, when taken just as peppermint oil, um, so like as an essential oil, can actually cause um, esophageal irritation and gastritis, so irritation of those tissues. But when it's enterically coated, meaning it's coated in a capsule that doesn't break down until it gets into the intestines, it actually seems to have really phenomenal benefit. Not only does it decrease sort of... Uh, spasming of the small intestine against gas, so perfect for our patients with SIBO, right, where we've got that fermentation happening in the small intestine. But it also seems to have some action at the nerve endings themselves, those enteric neurons that I described, and actually seems to help to tune down, turn down sort of the that hypersensitivity response, turn down the volume on the perceived sensation, the, the painful, the perceived painful stimulus, so that it becomes perceived as less painful doesn't mean that it's actually changing necessarily the sort of offending um, action that's happening, whether that be, you know, distension of the lumen due to gas or even just normal peristalsis or um, things like that, but rather that it's actually turning down the volume on those nerves to say, hey, 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 quiet down, right? We don't need to be this, quite this aware of what's happening in our gastrointestinal tract. And that's been shown to have really great improvement specifically for abdominal pain, um, visceral hypersensitivity, um, associated abdominal pain associated with IBS. And one of my favorite remedies to go to downside is that it can, um, just like it relaxes the smooth muscle that surrounds the, the small intestine, so it decreases that spasming, it can also relax the smooth muscle, muscle at the lower esophageal sphincter. And so you can get a little bit of reflux, heartburn, or GERD that can get worsened by enteric coated peppermint oil. So I do tell people to use it cautiously, start with low doses, um, and talk to your medical provider if it's an appropriate treatment for you. But it does seem to work quite well for a lot of folks who have this visceral hypersensitivity. That's so interesting. How can we prevent um, this from actually occurring in the first place? It's a great question and one that I really want to know the answer to. Um, it turns out that we don't have a lot of information about how to prevent visceral hypersensitivity. But if we're aware of, you know, we've, I just talked about those listed off that long list of proposed mechanisms, right? What causes people to become visceral, viscerally hypersensitive in the first place? You could imagine that by addressing each one of those, that you might be able to effectively prevent um, the development of visceral hypersensitivity. And we do find that. Um, there was a study specifically done in rats um, that were um, 
they, they, the, the specific rat model that was used was um, a post-infectious IBS leading to visceral hypersensitivity. I mean, it's amazing what they do in animal research, those poor little rats, um, that they are able to actually cause, right, not only post-infectious IBS, but they know they're going to cause visceral hypersensitivity in these rats as a result. And what they found is that if they gave probiotics along with the, um, or at the same time as the um, post-infectious IBS, that they actually had decreased rates of developing visceral hypersensitivity. Um, So we actually have a mechanism of prevention, which is really phenomenal. And these were were strains that we see kind of day to day. We know probiotics are complicated, right? And there's strains and then sub-strains and all of that. But um, bacteria that a lot of your uh, probiotics, a lot of your patients might know of, um, lactobacillus rhamnosus, um, lactobacillus plantarum, acidophilus, um, lactobacillus helvectius was seen as being helpful. And there's a lot of research on um, bifidobacter infantis, right? The probiotic found in the Align products, right? That's shown to decrease abdominal pain. And we think that that might be in part because it helps to um, modulate this visceral hypersensitivity. We also know that if we can decrease inflammation associated with um, microbial infections or inflammation or immune system reactivity, that we could kind of assume that that would also decrease the risk of development of visceral hypersensitivity. And there's actually been some herbs studied, not so much in the prevention of visceral hypersensitivity, but in the treatment of visceral hypersensitivity that might actually be really useful for us to think about using more frequently. Um, Curcumin was found in animal studies. So the the active constituent of turmeric was found in animal studies to have really improved um, visceral hypersensitivity with, with its use by modulating certain um, neurotransmitters, um, things called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, um, serotonin, which everybody's aware of, really complex actions in the gastrointestinal tract with that one, um, and cyclic AMP, which is a second messenger. Curcumin was shown to modulate all of these, all with, with benefit in terms of decreasing visceral hypersensitivity. We also find that ginseng, Siberian ginseng, or sorry, um, uh, panics ginseng, so the, an Asian ginseng, was shown to um, inhibit a particular serotonin receptor that seems to be implicated in visceral hypersensitivity and was shown to have some benefit there, um, as well as berberine, actually. We know we use a lot of berberine-rich herbs to treat SIBO, and we kind of, you know, in my, when I was first learning this, I thought, oh, we use, you know, they're, they're potent antimicrobials, fantastic. Turns out that berberines also increase nitric oxide in the gastrointestinal tract, and nitric oxide causes V dilation and there's some some thoughts um, in these studies that that actually also helps to um, decrease visceral hypersensitivity so a lot of the treatments that we've used you know already or are using do so do show some promise um, in in treatment and possibly also in preventing visceral hypersensitivity if somebody's wanting to find a practitioner that knows uh, or that can treat um, visceral hypersensitivity is you know, is there a way to find a practitioner or can any practitioner to um, work with a patient that is experiencing this? I really think that, you know, any practitioner sort of in the know who's staying up to date on the latest research, who's doing doing their due diligence by their patients really can help to address patients with visceral hypersensitivity. Um, there's so many more treatments than we even spoke to about visceral hypersensitivity, treatments that have been used for thousands of years, acupuncture and moxibustion 
have both been shown in big, large-scale trials and meta-analyses um, to improve visceral hypersensitivity. Um, you know, people who, practitioners who prescribe low-dose naltrexone, there's some thought that low-dose naltrexone by its modulating both of neuronal sort of nerve-based inflammation as well as modulation of toll-like receptors also helps to address visceral hypersensitivity. Um, we talked about, you know, counseling approaches and um, the pharmaceuticals. So I would say that, you know, probably best to make sure that your provider, you know, whoever you're working with, when you say, Hey, can you help me with your, my visceral hypersensitivity? That they know, you know, what those words mean, um, what you're what you're talking about. But because it's such a, again, a multifactorial, um, many many reasons why visceral hypersensitivity occurs in the first place. That means that there's so many tools available to treat. And so you might have one practitioner who's phenomenal with, you know, more uh, biofeedback, neurofeedback, or or more behavioral based, um, counseling based interventions. Who's going to be just as effective treating somebody's visceral hypersensitivity as another provider who uses more pharmaceutical management, lotus naltrexone or nortriptyline, or another provider who, you know, maybe is in a in a, a country or state that where um, mer medical marijuana prescribing is allowed. It's shown that cannabinoids can really help with visceral hypersensitivity. So because the tool basket is so wide in terms of our ability to treat, I think that a lot of pro most providers out there can help patients with visceral hypersensitivity. Um, you just, I think patients just have to ask, right? They just have to put it out there. And, and you might might be surprised. Um, patients might be surprised that their providers are already thinking about it and already has treatments on board to address the visceral hypersensitivity component, maybe without of having um, specifically talked about it um, up front. There's just always so much to talk about, right, in, in medical visits. There is. Well, you might even find that you're like me and you're doing it without even ne necessarily realizing. And I talk a lot about building a dream team of healthcare providers mm -hmm. and practitioners that are all working together to help you return to um, optimal health. And I have a broad range of people that I work with, but um, some of my key people are my psychologist who works with me, um, supports me on working through my childhood trauma experiences and really interestingly, whenever we, um, you know, go deep and really delve into a pretty significant memory, um, I feel that in my gut very, very clearly. I know that there is a huge link between gut and those experiences. I also... Um, after years of saying I must try it, I finally started doing acupuncture with, a, with an amazing practitioner here in Melbourne, Australia. Um, I started that in 2017 and that has had a profound um, impact on how I feel. Uh, I wasn't sure what to expect going into it, but, you know, I can say from my experience anyway, um, you know, it has really been quite amazing and I've come out of those sessions feeling quite different at times, quite altered. I can really feel mm -hmm. the change in the energy flow and um, I feel a lot more relaxed from that. Um, but I also have my uh, osteopath who works with me around my back because I had um, I've discovered in 2017. 2017, it was interesting. You know, SIBO is often the first step in the in the journey for many people, and it definitely was for me. And as I started to peel back that layer, I've uncovered all sorts of other things underneath the surface. And one was discovering that. 
I have a damaged disc in my spine and um, and that was actually causing great pain and, and inflammation, but my gut was worse. So that got my attention. And when my gut calmed down, then I was like, oh, my back's really sore. And so he's been working with me to help alleviate the other pain that I'm in in my body, which has, we've really calmed that down, which has been incredible. So it really is, I can see I've been naturally doing a lot of work around my um, visceral hypersensitivity. And and the final thing that I've done that I've added in, um, which has made a huge difference for me, has been meditation, a morning meditation practice. I follow, um, I have this great app uh, that I follow. I'll put the link to that in the show notes. And um, it's guided because I'm still not at a point where I can just meditate on my own. The brain's too wild and it wants to think of too many things. Ooh. And I find the meditation apps really, really helpful. And that really helps to just calm mm-hmm. everything down. And I find it great at the start of the day. And if I've had a really crazy day or if something um, has been upsetting in my day or if I'm feeling stressed, um, I'll do that at the end of the day as well. And I tell you what, that makes a huge difference in my world. Mm-hmm. It's such a great point, Rebecca. Thanks for bringing that up. It's it's something that I often talk to my patients about as well, that, that, that you really do need a team. And, and, you know, it's phenomenal the type of progress people will make when they do have a team, um, team approach, right? Not just relying all on one person or all on one kind of one sort of specific type of treatment, um, you know, one, one, one person or, or t- type of practitioner that I failed to mention that's so helpful at treating um, visceral hypersensitivity is actually body workers, specifically those that are doing visceral manipulation. Um, it might sound a little counterintuitive because you talk about increasing, you know, somebody who's an already sensitive gut, right? Cut, you know, having somebody go in there and sort of, you know, work on the mobility and motility of, of the organs might cause more pain. But in reality, it does seem that that, 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 um, increase in sort of sensory input does have sort of a normalizing effect on sensation in the abdomen um, and can kind of help to reset maybe the the, the the enteric nervous system, the gut-based nervous system, as well as the central nervous system to say, hey, you know, everything's okay here. And I think most of the treatments that work to address visceral hypersensitivity, especially the lifestyle-based treatments, like you mentioned, meditation practice, um, acupuncture, um, you know, body work, yoga, breathing practices, even prayer, a lot of those those practices are working right on on helping the body come back into balance and say, hey, we're okay, right? We're okay here. Um, and it's amazing what that does. And we, and we can talk about all the sciencey mechanisms behind that, right? We already kind of mentioned several of them. Um, but it's incredibly powerful medicine and incredibly important for healing for, for folks. Um, and absolutely kind of a, a, a must, you know, a must for anybody I'm working with who were starting on their treatment for, for SIBO, um, to, to get that, get that team on board, um, find those providers that you really resonate with, that you feel safe with, that you can do that good work with. And the, the treatment, um, timeline and um, success efficacy of treatment can just, I mean, it's amazing um, how much more um, happier, healthier, and how much more quickly people can can really work, um, move towards through that process when they have that team on board. 
talking about people. Do you have any case studies that you would be able to share with us? I love hearing real life stories of of when a patient has um, you know been able to implement something with their practitioner and and then seeing the results with it. Yeah, I have I have a couple of case studies. So I ta- I chatted a little bit um, about uh, uh, some cases or alluded to some of the cases with. Um, with heartburn, and I had one um, really wonderful patient, a, a woman in her mid twenties, who had come in experience and had had experienced um, specifically came in for. Um, reflux, um, but an interesting kind of reflux was called bile reflux. So reflux from the duodenum, that early part of the the um, small intestine into the stomach. And this was suspected to be the cause of her ongoing epigastric pain, pain, you know, right above the um, a belly button, kind of right below the ribs. And her and I worked together quite a bit. We did a lot of treatments, a lot of treatments your, your uh, listeners might be familiar with, prokinetics, low-dose erythromycin, iberogas, things to kind of get the gastrointestinal tract moving in the right direction. Um, we tried high doses of ginger. We did tripla. You know, we kind of brought everything out along with doing treatments to help soothe the stomach and prevent that bile from irritating the stomach lining. And honestly, we didn't get a lot of benefit. We maybe worked together probably for about four months or so with some of those treatments and she really struggled to get better. And, and I felt, um, you know, frustrated as a provider. I want to help people feel better a little bit more quickly. And, and we, one day we were doing some digging. We were, um, uh, I was working on her abdomen, doing a little bit of visceral manipulation and had, we were just ch- chatting and, and, you know, I said, you know, let's talk about when this all started. And it all started about the year before. This is how things happen, right? In the medical office. It's when we slow down, right? That things really come out. And uh, about a year before she'd gotten into a pretty significant motor vehicle accident. It was really scary. And um, the seatbelt had really kind of, you know, had tightened and she had a bruise, right? All along where the seatbelt had been that went through, right across her sternum and right through that epigastric area. And all these symptoms, these symptoms of epigastric pain, and then she also had that sort of heartburn sensation that nobody could really find the cause of except for, well, maybe it's a spile reflux that's happening. Um, there was some evidence of that, but nothing else to really explain the severity of her symptoms. And when we realized that, we were we were both just like, huh. I wonder, I wonder if that, that might be, there might be something there. So I kind of switched approaches and started kind of working on a visceral hypersensitivity approach. And this is one of those patients that kind of you and I both, Rebecca talked about being, being similar to where, you know, we were very hypervigilant about um, the foods that were coming in, very aware of the, the, you know, the felt experience of eating X, Y, or Z and, and what those sensations would be. And um, this patient was in, in that group. So we did, we sort of did, had a two prong approach. Don't want to overwhelm us ourselves with too many interventions all at once, but we talked about using low dose naltrexone. Um, this was great because she also had diagnoses of fibromyalgia, so it was a great kind of adjunctive um, treatment for that as well. We started low dose naltrexone, very low doses, and then continued to do um, visceral work. Um, specifically to address this this potential for um, visceral hypersensitivity as a result of that accident. And I'll say that it was it was not immediate, it was not overnight, but her awareness about 
this kind of traumatic event sort of starting this experience. Um, and her work at home with meditation, um, counseling, our work in the office to do visceral visceral manipulation, and then um, her taking the lotus naltrexone over the course of three to four months, we really started to notice improvements. And it was a slow and steady. It wasn't a light switch overnight. Oh my gosh, this is, you know, hit it out of the park, you know, no symptoms. But it was a really... Um, pretty phenomenal, slow and steady approach. And, and what I would describe as a really sustainable type of healing, right? It's not just about finding, you know, not, not just about like knocking back the SIBO. This patient also happened to have a SIBO, right? That didn't really respond well to treatments, you know, no, no real symptom benefit. It wasn't, you know, about that. It was really, how do we kind of heal from the inside out? How do we have that slow, sustainable approach to healing? And I just love that case for illustrating kind of the various components that that might have, that might have come in to influence her development of visceral hypersensitivity and how we we chose to treat that um, specifically in that case. I really um, love the fact that you raised that it wasn't immediate; that it did take some time. I'm three years in from my original SIBO diagnosis, and every day I have taken a little step forward towards better and improved health. And where I am today is not where I could have ever got to in a day three years ago. It's just been lots of tiny little steps forward that have all culminated to leave me or to put me into the position that I am today. And I think that one of the challenges when we first get a diagnosis of IBS or SIBO is that we think, great, I'll just pop a pill and then I'll be better. (laughs) And for so many of us, that is just not the case. And it can be a real um, challenge from a mindset perspective to acknowledge that this is a process. It's going to take time. There are going to be days where we may not feel better. We may feel 10 times worse, but every day, providing that we're we're working with a good practitioner, we're doing lots of, you know, we're eating healthy, nutritious food. We're thinking about how we're working on the other aspects of our body that perhaps need assistance. Everything we do it's like lots of little tiny drips that will end up creating a swimming pool and um, and it can be really hard to see that swimming pool forming at the beginning. But when you look back, like I do, three years later and I go, wow, look at my amazing swimming pool of all the tiny little things that I've done every day to get me to where I am today. And where I am today versus where I am in three more years in the future, again, will be so much um different because that swimming pool will have turned into a small lake. <laughs> I love that, Rebecca. It really, it really is true. We, um, um, perspective is everything when it comes to um, a diagnosis and successful treatment of SIBO, in my, in my opinion. And, and what we can do both as practitioners and patients to slow down, which is, gosh, right, the total opposite of what our society is asking us these days and what a lot of us want to do. But the more we can do to slow down and say, all right, right, what is this telling me about my life or lifestyle? What are the shifts that I can make? Um, How can I support my whole healing? Oh my gosh, we're just going to be so much more successful at treating our gut, our gastrointestinal health, right? Ultimately. And I, and I love that you, I love that you speak to that. I know you speak to that quite a bit on this podcast and and in your materials. And I think that is such a fantastic reminder and such a service um, to your listeners to, to remind folks of that, that process. It's time, it takes time and it, and it's frustrating often, but um, so can be so rewarding at the end or as in the process of it. 
It can, and I can speak from personal experience. I'm so glad that I have done that work uh, because at times in the process, I have not wanted to. Dr. Megan Taylor, thank you so much for coming back onto the Healthy Gut Podcast and sharing your knowledge um, with us today. I know I have learned a lot. Now, you've recently moved from Portland, Oregon, up to Seattle in Washington State. And uh, so how can people find you? Because the contact details that um, they had for you from your original interview have changed. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yep, I moved. I moved to the slightly more rainy and gray um, Seattle, Washington. But I'm happy to be here. Um, so, best place to get in touch with me um, are um, via my personal website, which is Megan M E G A N Taylor T A Y L O R nd as a naturopathic doctor.com and I, I update all my contact information on that site pending you know my move um and people can contact me that way i practice here um in west seattle um the neighborhood that i've moved to and then i also um, have an online practice once a week um providing distance educational consultations as well so kind of two ways to get access to me and and, and chat with me and, and thank you so much uh, rebecca for having me on to talk about this topic it is um sort of near and dear to my heart the more I the more I get into the um, this community and working with patients and um, think it's so important that we all become a little bit more educated about visceral hypersensitivity and the role it has to play in, in SIBO and IBS. It is definitely so thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Megan Taylor. If you're anything like me, you will have found that absolutely fascinating. To get the show notes from today's episode, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash VH. And VH stands for Visceral Hypersensitivity. Now, would you like to get access to the full transcript from today's podcast? If you would, and you can get this absolutely free, just make sure you have signed up to become a member of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Head to the show notes page, thehealthygut.co forward slash VH, and you will see on the page, it says, would you like to be a member? Enter your name and email address. And once you do that, you will get an email confirming your membership for the podcast and you will get access to the full transcript from today's episode. And I know how useful it is to get a transcript so it can really help you follow along with our conversation. There were quite a few medical terms we mentioned today. It really helps you for taking notes and even going back to your own practitioner, um, particularly if you feel like this could be me, we need to do something about it. I also mention in today's episode that I am getting ready to do some really fantastic research about the SIBO patient. I'd love to know if you'd be interested in participating in this. It will just be a case of filling out a questionnaire. What I am wanting to do with this research is go and present it to doctors around the world to say, hey, this is who we are. We are a diverse range of people who experience SIBO and we are to be taken seriously. So I really need your help, guys, in filling out this survey. But first, I need to know if you're even interested in it. So if you head to thehealthygut.co forward slash VH, 
You'll see a box there that says, are you interested in participating in the SIBO patient research program? All you need to do is say, I am, and uh, I'll keep you informed of when the research launches so that you can undertake the survey. It'll be an enormous help for me. So I thank you in advance for um, participating. Now, I always love it when I hear feedback from you guys. Um, So it would be fantastic if you can head to Apple Podcasts or the app you use to listen to this podcast and leave a rating and review. Snidget1025, I hope that's how I pronounce it, left a message saying, thank you, Rebecca, for this wonderful podcast. When I was in the darkest and most trying part of my SIBO journey, your podcast helped me to see that there was hope. And in particular, it showed me that my mindset could greatly improve my quality of life. I highly recommend this podcast to anyone looking to optimize their gut health and thus their health in general. Thank you so much for leaving that review. And I know that will really help others to know that this is the right podcast for them. So guys, it would be fantastic if you can head to Apple Podcasts or whatever app you use to listen to this podcast and leave a rating and review to help others know that this is the right SIBO-focused podcast for them. And don't forget to come and say hi. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest, Google+. And we love connecting with you. So come say hi. And there's a heap of really valuable resources and content that uh, myself and the team at The Healthy Gut share with you to make life a little easier with SIBO. Coming up on next week's show, I am joined by the one, the only Dr. Mark Pimentel. This interview took over 12 months in the making and I was absolutely thrilled to have the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Mark Pimentel face to face in Los Angeles when I was there just recently. We go through a whole heap of questions that people who listen to this podcast submitted and I'm you know, thrilled to be able to bring this interview to you. So tune in next week to hear Dr. Mark Pimentel and I answer some of your most important questions about SIBO. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Red Lemon Productions for the production and original music score of this podcast. To find out more about their services, head to redlemonproductions.com. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.